You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Maybe I was Back up on a shelf. Sue! What, the, new, what? the new wash-up wants to audition for my play. Wait, 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 we have a new wash-up? Last night. And oh. I'm thrilled she's here because I've got one more role to cast. Hey, oh. Nancy. Oh, here she comes. Oh, oh, hey, hi. hi. I, I, I'm Sue. I'm Lorna. Uh, okay, hi, Lorna. You're Lorna... Landvik. Lorna Landvik. Okay. I found Lorna Landvik, oh. author what? of what Patty Jane's House of Curl. Oh, sorry. Have, have you have you met Miri before? Hello. Oh. My name is Miri. Yeah. For English, oh say Oh, my gosh. One. She's a she lava lamp. lamp. Yeah, she yeah. is, yeah. Oh, wow, cool. Oh, so you, you've written a book. Yeah, a novel. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's your last name again, Lorna? Landvik. I'm a big reader. Uh, Landvik, oh, Lorna Landvik. I found Lorna Landvik, author of the Tall Pine Polka. Okay, so that's two books then. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. very impressive. Yeah, two oh, books. Thank really you. Impressive. Okay, so let's have yeah. you read something from my play, yeah. right. The End of the World. Yeah. I'd love to see your style. Okay, because I have dabbled in stand-up and improv, so... Oh, you've been on stage before. Yeah, Yeah, a little, but really I'm more of a writer. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Lorna. What was your last name again? Uh, Lorna Landvik. I found Lorna Landvik, author of All My Stars. Is this three books now? Yeah. Three books. Okay. Okay. Um, How about we read this scene in Act 4? Four acts? Seven, actually. But I think it'll be perfect for this role. Okay, let's do it. Good. So you'll be playing... Oh, there's Day. Oh. Hey, what's up, guys? Hi, hey, you Day. rescued me. Yeah, I did. Um, It's Lena, right? Lorna. No, Lorna. Lorna Landvik. Lorna Landvik. Yeah, I Landvik. found Lorna oh. Landvik, author of Chronicles of a Radical Hag with Recipes. Yeah. Oh, are you a writer? Yeah. Yes. Oh and I think she's so written, what is it, four books now? Oh, I like Whoa. to keep busy. Yeah, oh, that's so yes. neat. Okay. okay. Yeah. The audition... Day, mm-hmm. per usual, you'll be reading the young climate scientist, Dr. Alicia Day. Right. And so you'll, you're yeah. the Republican puppet. Natch. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lorna. Sorry, Republican puppet? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I'm a worn, overly stuffed, white athletic sock with uh, pasted on googly eyes, one of which is missing. Who just oh. says, climate change is a hoax, like yeah. a lot. <laughs> cool. Cool. Yeah. Yes, and, and Lorna, you'll be playing the role of Mrs. Doorhanger. I, excuse me, are you saying doorhanger like door hanger? Yes, doorhanger. <laughs> like, it's not doorunger, because I, I knew a doorunger at Dartmouth. She was the daughter of a dentist. No, it's just doorhanger. Oh, Mrs. Doorhanger. Great. We ready? Yep. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yep. Sure, let's good, do this. Good. Okay. And I'll be reading the stage directions. Um, sorry, can you just tell me a little bit about Mrs. Doorhanger? 
She's a colleague of the young climate scientist, Dr. Okay. Alicia Day. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Doorhanger, which she insists on being called, often challenges the work being done at the Science Institute, mm. claiming that someone needs to be the devil's advocate oh, in the okay. room yep. for scientific purposes. Mm -hmm. However, there is an air of mystery about her, and it's oh. not always clear what her motivation mm. is. And what is her motivation in, in this particular scene? Why don't we just read it? I, I know you're reading cold, but I think if we just jump in, you'll have a better idea of what's going on, and then we can discuss all these questions. Yes. Well, just one more question. I mean, does she hail from a particular part of the country or, or world? I mean, I, I really like to do accents. Why, if it isn't Colonel Beauregard P. Dor hang on the thud, come on the back from the day. No, no, she's no. just a regular American. Oh. So... So I guess standard American English would work? Sure, that would be okay. lovely. Okay, let's begin, please. Act four, scene 12. Okay, I, I, I got one more question. How old is she? I mean, I can play all sorts of ages. I can be really old. I can be How old are you? are you? I am old enough for people to think my novel, Chronicles of a Radical Hag with Recipes, is a memoir. <laughs> All right. And that's exactly how old she is. Okay. So, act four, scene 12. All right. Please, Zippy. Oh, there's music? Oh, uh, sorry, you haven't met Zippy yet? No. Oh, sorry. Hi, I'm Zippy Lasky. Yeah. Zippy Lasky, Lorna Lambic. Hi. Yeah. I found Laura Lambic, oh, author of Your Oasis on Flynn Lake. Okay, so please, this is five books now, Lorna? Sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Act four. Okay. Scene twelve. Science Institute. Morning. Mrs. Doorhanger, along with the Republican puppet, walk up to Dr. Alicia Day in her cubicle. Dr. Alicia Day, what are you doing? Stop, please. <laughs> She's not Russian. Well, I'm just trying to get a handle on her. You, you say there's an air of mystery about her, so she, couldn't she be a Russian? She's not Russian, okay? Okay. Her mystery needs to unfold slowly. Making her Russian is too obvious. Duh, of course, all Russians are obvious. Sue, please. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. It just screams cliche, okay? Naysayer of science is really a Russian spy. I didn't mean she was a Russian spy. Well, she is, okay? Oh, what? Oh, what? But we don't want anyone to know until the end of the play, and we still have three more acts to go. So she can't have a Russian accent in this scene, okay? Okay, got it. Good. Got it. <sighs> Let's continue where we left off. So then, yeah, Dr. Alicia Day, say hi. What are you doing there? Stop, huh? stop. What? I'm sorry, what was that? Well, I figure if she's really Russian, but is trying not to sound like she is, maybe she's putting on an American accent to conceal her true identity. But since she can't really sound like an American, maybe she's pretending to sound like an old Norwegian from up north Minnesota. 
I finally get it. Lorna Landvik is Norwegian. Makes sense. Oh my yeah. gosh. I found Laura Landvik, author of The View from Mount Joy. Oh, come on. Six, Six books now? Something like that. Yeah. Wow. What, 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 is, what, what, what does that mean, something like that? People, uh, let's focus, please, right. and get through the scene. So from the top, and Lorna? Yes. Honey? No Russian, no Norwegian, okay. no Colonel Beauregard. Okay. Just think evil. Thank you. Zippy, music. <laughs> Mrs. Doorfinger. Door ringer. Door hanger. <laughs> Along with the Russian, the Republican puppet. Walk up to Dr. Alicia Day in her cubicle. Dr. Alicia Day. What are you doing all alone in your cubicle? I'm working on a report for the World Climate Initiative, Mrs. Doorhanger. Climate change is a hoax! Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Puppet, but let's use our inside voices. Climate change is a hoax! Good boy, good boy. Treat? <gasps> <laughs> so, Dr. Day, what are you really doing here? Or actually, why? Are you here? I'm not sure I understand what you're asking, oh, Mrs. Oh, come on. You're a smart, beautiful young woman. You've got so much potential. Thank you. Do you really want to just sit around in a cubicle all day long? I'm sorry. Don't you want to get out there and live an actual life? I'm trying to save the planet, Mrs. Doinger, so I can live an actual life. I will not sit by witness the end of the world. Oh, that is so sweet. No, it's not. It's dire. Without the research I'm compiling about the effects of climate change, we won't have a planet to leave for our children. But you don't have any children. Not yet. But someday I will, and oh, when I... Oh, how can you really trumpet this alarm of harming future generations when you yourself are not procreating? Seems disingenuous, don't you think? Wait, are you saying that I can't rightfully fight against the effects of global warming if I don't have children? Yes. Wow, I have no words. That's fairly clear. Um, in the meantime, why don't you go get your nails done? <sighs> Mrs. Doorhanger and the puppet begin to walk away. Yeah, I'm so way not going to do that. A nice red polish, perhaps? Ugh. Climate change is a hoax! Oh, shut up! Okay. And scene! Oh, that was terrific! Great job, Lorna! Oh, thank you. Thank you. Whoa, that Mrs. Doorhanger, though. Wow, what a bad cookie. Yeah. That, that evil note really helped a lot. Oh, you know, good. she kind of reminds me of Phyllis Schlafly. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. That kind of evil. Yeah, that now, kind of evil. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. every play needs conflict, mm -hmm. so it's very crucial to have a villain. <laughs> yeah. But then you know that from writing your six novels. Yeah. Twelve. <laughs> I'm sorry. What'd you say? Uh, whoops. I I didn't mean to blurt that Wait, out. No, no. I'm sorry. You you actually written twelve books? Uh, yeah, t twelve novels. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm totally confused. First, you said you had written a book, and now it's twelve. Uh, that's right. Why didn't you just say 12 in the first place? Well, I, I didn't want you to think I was like, hey, look at me, I wrote 12 books. 
Yeah, but you've written 12 freaking books. That's yeah. amazing. Do you know Nora Roberts has written about 540? Wait, so? Nora Roberts, an American author. Yeah, th thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Lorna, 12 books is incredible. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was working on my 13th and until I washed up. Ooh, if you write number 13 on the island, can I be in it, please? Okay, wait, 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 let me just ask you this. Why not just say, hi, I'm Lorna Landvik, and I've written 12 I've books. I found Lorna Landvik, we go. author of Once in a Blue Moon Lot. Thank you, Miria. That's really plenty. Okay, but, but seriously, why would you downplay how many books you've written? Yeah. Well, because I wanted you to like me. Whoa, what? I Are get that. I totally get no, that. No, 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 no. So we wouldn't like you because you've written 12 books? No, you wouldn't like me if I announced to you that I had written 12 books. You know, I'm not good at tooting my own horn. In fact, my own paternal grandmother would literally tell me, don't toot your own horn, Lorna. <laughs> you know, even as I wondered, Grandma, what's a horn for? You know, but I absorbed the lesson. And my mom, she didn't teach me with words, but by example. Hmm. She was a gifted seamstress. She designed clothes without a pattern. She made beautiful quilts. She'd crochet tablecloths with the intricacy of a spider's web. She was also the go-to accompanist at her church hmm. on the piano. She had a beautiful, rich, harmonic voice. And yet she'd always wave aside compliments like, Oh, this old thing, or oh, oh, it was nothing, or oh, anyone could do this. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. time, one time when I was in college after an opening night, I called my mother and I said, "Oh, mother, I was really good in the play, really good," and she said, "Now, Nancy, it's not for you to say; that's for other people to notice." Yeah, Aww. that's a familiar message. Mm -hmm. Were you ever that honest again? I would argue with her. I'd say, my godmother, if I don't think I'm good, who will? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, I mean, like, yeah. for me, okay, being humble was the goal in our family. Striving to be humble is great, right? But mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, I confuse being humble with don't think you're so special. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Which then morphed into I'm not special. Oh. Yeah. And eventually led to a complete lack of confidence about anything that I did well. You know, like we do. Yep. You know, like we well, do. Well, confidence has never been a problem for me. Oh, My father always said that I had congenital confidence. <laughs> I was confident right out of the womb. Oh, funny. Sorry, I could not find congenital confidence. Oh. Please check the spelling and try again. You know, it sounds like the name of a horse. And congenital confidence is coming up from behind, and he's going to lead the ball. My very first job after college was at a big Madison Avenue advertising agency in New York. Yeah. I had heard through a friend of a friend that they were hiring, yeah. and I got an interview with the head of the research department, Mr. Rosina. He asked me what my major had been at Syracuse University, and I said I was a theater major. And then he said, did you take a lot of math classes? <laughs> and I said, no, none. I tested out of the required classes. And then he said, well, did you take any marketing classes? No. Business classes? No. There was an awkward pause, and then I said, but I'm smart. Hmm. And if you teach me, I'll learn. And I will come in early, and I'll stay late. And within a month, I promise you, I will be able to hold up my end and do this job really well. And you'll be so glad you hired me. 
so he hired me. <laughs> and I did learn. And I did work hard. And Mr. Rosine and I became close friends. Wow. Definitely congenital confidence mm -hmm. in play there, Nancy, I would Sorry, have to say. Sorry, I could not find congenital confidence. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, Mary. That's okay, Mary. Thank you for trying. <laughs> I simply asserted the one true thing I knew about myself at that age mm. that I could learn. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Day, what do you think about this? Huh? I feel like it. This is really hard for me. Okay. You know, because I've never felt like I've done anything worthwhile. You know, besides grades, and I for sure got praised for that. You know, obviously, <laughs> I'm not afraid to announce my accomplishments because I know how hard I worked. But I just don't like to parade what I do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't post or talk too much about anything I do because I don't think it's amazing enough to. Hmm. I am a perhaps. A bit too self-deprecating yeah. and hard on yes. myself. Yeah. Yes. Though I am confident enough, Nancy, don't worry about mm -hmm. that. I, I just can't bring myself to boast about anything. Maybe it's the way I was brought up. I don't know. I still have a lot of unpacking to do. Okay. Sorry. Makes total sense to me. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. You know, now that I think about it, I think I also conflated don't put yourself on a pedestal with don't dream big. Yeah. I mean, like, Big dreams was somehow silly or selfish. I mean, like, for instance, I was not going to major in theater in college because I truly thought that meant that I was announcing to the world that I was planning on becoming a Broadway star. And that felt way too showboaty and grandiose of a goal and totally unreachable. Now, at the time, I didn't know there were working actors yes. that were not Broadway stars or movie stars, so I, I get kind of a pass. But... At 16, clearly I felt like my dreams should be smaller. Interesting, my high school theater teacher was very surprised when I told him I was not going to be a drama major. And he said to me, do me a favor, would you? Your freshman year, take a beginning acting class. Just, just, just for me. And I did. You became a drama major eventually, right? Well, very quickly, actually. Uh, I tried... <laughs> I tried anthropology for about two months. I and found anthropology, the study of human society. Yeah. Mary, 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 that, please don't remind me. Even those 101 courses about killed me. <laughs> Theater just made sense, so I jumped in, you know, with zero idea of where it might lead, of course. And look where it led you. Yeah. I got to do funny voices on the radio. Oh, oh stop that. Stop downplaying your career. I was kidding. No, you no, weren't. No, yes, I was. No. I was totally kidding. Years ago. My friend Paul and I had our own theater. And one time during a casting session, a young woman took the stage, and just before she started her monologue, she said, I don't know if I'm what you're looking for. I'm probably not what you had in mind. I don't even know if I'm any good. And I stopped her immediately. And I said, if you don't think you're good enough, don't waste my time. I want a confident actor in this role. Goodbye. She exited in tears. And I didn't stop her. And Paul was so shocked that I could be so cold, but I told him I was doing her a favor, hmm. and I was. But Nancy, that was kind of hard. Yeah. yeah, and how was that a favor? Yeah. Can you imagine a man walking into an audition or a job interview and saying, hi, I'm probably not what you want, and I'm probably all wrong for this job, but here goes. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, right. yeah. No, yeah it wouldn't yeah, happen. Right. They would no. think he was nuts. Mm. But we're groomed from the time we are children to be afraid to show confidence because it isn't attractive. Hide your light under a bushel basket. Right, <laughs> right, Lorna. If I shocked this young woman, 
if I made her see herself in a new light, well, maybe the next time she went to an audition, she'd say, I think I'm perfect for this role. Yeah. Let me show you what I can do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then did she come back to audition? No, I never saw her again. Aww. And I still wonder, did I empower her or did I destroy her? I'm going to go with you empowered her. Wouldn't it be great if we all were born with congenital empowerment? Because <laughs> right out of the womb. Sorry, I could not find congenital empowerment. Yes. Please check the spelling and try again. Funny, Mir. Okay, so you know the American uh, tennis player who just won the Australian Open? Yeah. yeah. Okay, there's a video of her when she's seven years old, and she's saying very seriously right into the camera, I want to be number one in the world. Oh, good for her. And at 21... She just won her first major. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. So let's say we're all confident at that age, at seven. What happens to it? The patriarchal hammer comes slamming down on your dreams. <laughs> Don't say oh, that. No, no, no. You know, until women stop playing into that crap and start embracing their strengths, we'll continue to be undervalued. When I feel insecure, I, I push myself to say I'm great, and I think all of you should too. Okay, but how do you do that, Nancy? You know what? Okay. You know what? We're going to break yeah. this open right now. What? Lorna Landvik, tell us something you are really good at. I found Lorna Landvik, author of Angry Housewives Eating Bonbons. Thank you, Mary. I'm sorry, Nancy. What did you say? I'll give you 10 seconds to Ooh. think about something you're really oh, good no. at. I gotta okay. go first? Yeah. Because you're new. New wash ups always go first. Yeah. Okay. Clock come starts on. right now. Come Zippy? On, come on, come on. Oh. I don't really oh, wanna do this. You can do this, Lorna. Go ahead. You got it. Five seconds. Come on, come yeah. on. Come Lorna, on, you can do this. Time. Oh, okay. Time. Okay. I am really good at balancing things. Okay. Oh. Including oh. myself. I shall demonstrate. Oh. <laughs> Oh, wow. Whoa. Was that was that yoga? That's a side pro. That's what the B-boys do. Oh gosh. Oh, Mary, Whoa. side pro, B-boys, help me. I don't know what those are. I found Be My Baby yeah. by the Ronettes. That's not it. Never mind, Mary, that's not it. Okay, Sorry. okay. Day, oh, day. you're next. You're next, day. Wait, me? Yeah. yeah. Ten seconds. Oh, but I don't have to try. No, 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 come on. Five Wait, seconds. Okay, I really you can find something, day. Come on. But it's really hard. Come on. Time. Time. Okay, 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 okay. I'm really good at making a cartoon squirrel face. Ooh. <laughs> wow, that is a cartoon squirrel face. How did you do that? Good. Thank wow. you. Thank that's you. This is great, Day. That's We're going to work on you, Day. Oh, that's good. <laughs> what good, about good. Mary here? Yeah, hey, Mary. What about you? What are you good at? I'm sorry. I didn't understand the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Seriously, Mary, tell us what you are really good at. Hello? Hello, my name is Midi. Yeah, and Mary is good at... My name is Midi. And you are... <laughs> I am Midi. Yeah, and you are a... I am a lava lamp. Yes, and... Uh... I am a miracle operating interface lava lamp. Oh. I use natural language voice queries to answer questions in any language. Yes, you do. I am exceptional. Wait, say that line again. Okay, I am exceptional. Now in Spanish. Translating. Soy exceptional. And in French? Translating. Je suis exceptionnel. Now Norwegian? Translating. I'm kidding, Miriam, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I am exceptionnel. Oh, what? <laughs> yes. Wow, Mary, that's just great. You are exceptional. That's just great. Okay, Nancy. Oh, 
your turn. Yeah, your turn. I've already had a turn. No, I had no, 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 you didn't. Five seconds. Mm-mm. Hey, what about my turn? It's too late for that. Three, two, one, go. Okay, 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 okay. I'm, I am smart, and I have a great vocabulary, and that matters to me because I can comfort myself and others with my words. Yes. Oh, Good for you, Nancy. Yeah. That's just great. That. That's just great. Good for you. Who's next? What are you all looking at? What are you looking at me for? What are you, you looking at me? Sue. Oh, I did my thing. I did the high school Ten thing. Ten seconds. No. no. Five seconds. That wasn't five seconds between there. Two already. seconds. Two seconds? Mary, help me, please. I found help yeah. by the Beatles. Okay, that's no help, Mary. Never mind. Three, no, two, no, one. No, no. Time. Okay, 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 okay. I talk a lot. I am incredibly verbally inclined. Nobody talks more than I do. Ta-da! Where's my ta-da? Where's my freaking ta-da? That's a cop-out, Sue. Okay, sorry, I can't do it. I found Sue Scott, recipient of the 2017 Alumna of the Year Award Mary, please. for the College of Fine Arts at the University of Arizona. <sighs> Thank you. All right. That's so cool, Sue. Yes, it is, oh but I really wish you had been the one to say it yourself. All right, okay, I, t- I copped out twice, sorry. But, you know, where is this exercise going, anyway? Uh, what do you mean? I mean, so we all come out of our shelves, and we start expressing our confidence out loud to the world, and then what? I mean, what do we do with this newfound post-congenital empowerment? Sorry, I could not find post-congenital empowerment. Yeah, that's right. Please check the spelling and try again. I, I made it up, Mary, that's okay. But seriously, seriously, guys, come on. If we're pushing through these fears of tooting our horns and, and now we're speaking confidently, shouldn't we be putting that new confidence to work somehow for something? Yeah. I think we huh? should take that confidence and run for office. Well, that's a good yeah, idea. That yeah. is yeah. a good yeah. idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. But how do we speak out, guys? Because there Seriously. can be risks involved. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So if we're going to speak out, how do we start? We practice. We trust, okay. and we tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Says the woman who has written 12 best-selling novels. <laughs> They're not all bestsellers. Oh, Stop that. that. Oh, okay, <laughs> sorry. Hey, 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 Zippy. Yes? You've got a story, right? Well, I used to think that I didn't have a story mm-hmm. and that I had nothing worthwhile to say, you know? Mm-hmm. Don't let the girl know she has a voice. She may start having ideas. Ooh. Ooh. So scared. I've been afraid to speak up. But being on this island, I found something. Hmm. Something that's been buried for a long time. What's that? My voice. Oh, Oh, sweet. And for once, I feel confident enough to say, no. No. And it feels so liberating. I've been a people pleaser my whole life, conditioned to smile. And it's bullshit. It is bullshit. Mm -hmm. So you know what? No. No. Good for you. Oh, another low-paying casino gig for me, sir? Uh, no thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, another great. smoke-filled room to hack out my lungs in? Uh, nah, I'm good. She's good. Oh, cat calling me from stage again, are we? How endearing. Move on, buddy. Yeah, move on. Ah, uh, you want me to flirt with your cousin Joe because he's going through a breakup? Mmm, that's gonna be a hard no. Yeah, hard no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tired of playing nice. Good for you. I'm smart. Yep. I want to sing my own music mm-hmm. to people that appreciate me. Yep, yes. yep, Good for yep, you. yep. I have a story, and I'm not afraid to share it. 
any longer. Good for yeah. you. Good for you, Zippy. Yeah. Here I stand, just a prize for the taking. I'll sing you a song that makes you cry. Numb from your drinking, you shout at me thinking that I should be the one to dry your eyes. Wouldn't that be nice? Sick from the smoke. And from all the bad jokes Going through the motions again And though I may be smiling Inside I'm dying An act that goes straight to the guy to shut the hell up and that's coming straight from the heart when the smoky lights dim and reality kicks in I feel like a stranger to myself beneath all the calls the breakdowns I wonder what the hell I'm doing here cheaper than your beer I once vowed my talent would better myself and the planet now I'm pretty sure that guy is sleeping at the bar hey look up from your walk out that door and that's coming straight from the heart oh welcome to the show take what you want and then go if I were honest I'd say no more I'm better off without this. I'd sing something straight from the heart. I'd sing something straight from the heart. week, I read an article uh, from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about Mary Inglebright. Now, we all know Mary Inglebright, right? Yeah. Many of us do? She's an artist who creates those uh, gorgeously illustrated cards and calendars with 
the lighthearted captions that are oftentimes a little sassy. She's built this empire with cards and, and, and calendars and fabrics and magazines and books and all this kind of stuff. Okay, I bought a calendar of Mary's this year that was edgier than usual. Very funny, really, really funny, but definitely darker than her normal stuff. And until I read this article a couple of days ago, I didn't know why. So here's the deal. She lives in St. Louis, Missouri. 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 <laughs> and in August of 2014, she was so struck by the police shooting of an 18-year-old Michael Brown in nearby Ferguson that she created a drawing unlike her typical fic. She had a son about Michael's age who had died years before, and the shooting of this teenager brought back very painful memories for her. So in this drawing, there's a black mother, and she's sitting at a table holding her child, and his little arms are raised. And in front of them is a newspaper with a headline that reads, Hands up, don't shoot. And the caption across the drawing says, no one should have to teach their children this in the USA. Okay, so Mary posted this drawing on Facebook and received so much immediate criticism that Facebook took down the post, saying it was offensive. Somehow, yes, somehow she was able to get the post back up, but by the end of the day, she had lost 11,000 followers. She said she was shocked by the ugliness of the comments and wondered if she had destroyed her 40-year career with a single drawing. But ultimately, she decided that fear wasn't going to stop her from speaking her mind. Now, according to the article, her key demographic is middle-aged to upper-middle-aged women. All right, I totally get I totally, totally get that not all women share the same opinions or ideologies or politics. I get that. And I also completely understand, and I'm not at all naive to the fact that there is racism in this country and that racist beliefs are not gender specific. I get that. What I don't get is how 11,000 middle-aged and upper middle-aged women could be so offended by an artist that they loved who was simply expressing her own grief through her art over the killing of an 18-year-old young man. I don't get that. I never will. I'm sorry. Mary Inglebright's drawing ended up raising $40,000 for the Michael Brown Jr. Memorial Fund. And now the latest from the WW Shush When Women Shop Shit Happens Bureau. <laughs> hey, Lorna Landvik. Hey, Sue Scott. So, Lorna, remember that story about the NPR reporter who was called into the principal's office and to get yelled at by the Secretary of State? Yep who at some point during his 10-minute rant told her to find Ukraine on a map with no words on it, which of course she found with no trouble and then was later accused of actually pointing to Bangladesh like 300 million miles away. 
Remember that one? Yeah, of course. Okay, so here's what I want to know. How does one find a map of the world with no words on it so quickly? I mean, yes, of course you can Google it, but that still takes a little time. So, or does his staff, like, have a stack of maps just, like, ready to go? Hmm? Okay. Okay, he wants a map of the world with no words. No words. Yeah, hey, I have no idea what that means. He just said no words. Oh, he means no names of the countries. Right, I guess that's it. Yes, that, that's it, that's it. Become oh, names, oh, yes. Does he want it with or without colors? Colors, what do you mean colors? What do you mean colors? Well, colors of the countries. Oh, the, uh, no, let's go no colors, no colors. No okay, colors. how about lines? Lines? Yeah. What do you, lines? The lines on the map. Oh, you mean like the boundaries of the borders? Yeah, borders, boundaries. Did he say no boundaries either? No, but you know, maybe that would be a good idea. That might be good. Well, ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. He'll scream my head off. Yeah, he's already doing that. Um, you know what? I say we go with, uh, uh, with no words, no colors, and no lines. Okay. Okay, okay. What about this? And what, what, what is that? It's a flat map of the Earth. Yeah, I get it's a flat map on a piece of paper. I no, get No, no, it's when they thought the earth was flat. He used this last time. Oh, he did use that last time, didn't he? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. No, 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 that's not good. That's good. Uh, okay. Oh, okay, okay. How about this? Uh, which is that? What is that? It, I think it's Atlantis. That big fake hotel in the Bahamas? No, the place that sunk. That big fake hotel sunk? No. The lost <laughs> island or continent, whatever it was. You know, Atlantis. Hmm, I must have been sick that day. Uh, what, el what, el what else you got? What else you got? Okay, we, uh, Star Trek Galaxy Map. No, 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 no. Uh, Map of the Middle Earth. Mm, no. Uh, Map of Erogenous Zones. Oh, that's an idea. No, 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 no. no uh. The layout of the golf course at Mar-a-Lago. Oh. <laughs> Let's go with that one. She will never find Ukraine on that one. The Secretary of State's failed takedown of a whip-smart NPR reporter is brought to you by Flip 'em the Bird. <laughs> when you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Chop their fingerless gloves and knit hats at flipemthebird.com. When there's no words, you can flip them the bird. GPS not included. You're listening to the roar of the female humans. humans. And now, please welcome my special guest for the conversation, Nakima Levy-Armstrong. Nakima, come on up. Hi, Nakima. Oh, Hi, my gosh. Look how cool Hi, this everybody. Is. Look how cool this is. So, um, you are a civil rights attorney. Yes. Uh, activist, former president of the Minneapolis NAACP and currently the executive director of Wayfinder Foundation. Yes. Now, we were chatting a little bit last week, and uh, originally you're from Jackson, Mississippi, and you moved to South Central LA when you were uh, eight years old. Yeah. Eight year, yeah. You were telling me how the t your teachers had recognized a very high academic potential in you and recommended a, an accelerated program for you, and which led you to attending a four-year private boarding school in North Andover, Massachusetts. Yes. Affluent, predominantly white, secluded, very different than South Central. Please tell us about that experience. That was definitely a memorable <laughs> experience um, going from South Central to North Andover. But it was in that environment that I really learned a lot about how the world actually works. 
Um, many of my classmates have been born into wealth. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, a lot of those same classmates would talk down about black and Latinx people. And so being in that environment is actually what inspired me to learn about African-American history and to identify the strengths that African-American people possessed in light of the oppression that they experienced. And so I just made a decision as I was reading stories about Harriet Tubman uh, and her work in helping to free over 300 enslaved people mm -hmm. Um, and knowing that she had been denied an education, she had been denied uh, access to equal rights, any of the things that we take for granted. She didn't have transportation. She didn't have Facebook, Twitter, you know, any, again, How the things we take for granted. So yeah. for her to be able to accomplish that as a black woman in that type of environment, let me know that I could do anything that I put my mind to. Yeah, wow, wow, wow. Um, in your freshman year, you've just moved to this private boarding school, and March 16th, 1991, and this is just almost two weeks after Rodney King's brutal beating, and a very good friend of yours, Latasha Harlins, yes. is shot in the head while leaving a store in your old neighborhood. Tell yeah, us about well, that. It, so, Latasha... Um, was a friend of mine from junior high school. And I had actually hung out with her before leaving LA to go off to boarding school. And that was the last time that I saw her alive. And so while I was um, in boarding school, my mother called me and she let me know that Latasha had been killed. And she was killed around the corner from my house mm. uh, um, inside of a store that I had frequented with my siblings. And one of the things about Los Angeles during that period of time is that there was a lot of racial tension. So the neighborhood that I grew up in was primarily black and Latinx. Uh, and many of the people who lived in the neighborhood were low income and really working hard to survive, but mostly marginalized from the rest of society. Within that environment, most of our stores were owned by Korean immigrants. And there was often racial tension, language barriers, racial stereotypes at play, um, and those things had an impact on the interactions between people when they would walk into the store. And so on that fateful day, Latasha had walked into the store with one of her younger siblings. She went to the back of the store to grab a bottle of orange juice. She put the orange juice in her backpack, and she started walking towards the front of the counter to pay for the juice. But the store owner had assumed that Latasha was stealing the orange juice. Mm. And she actually confronted Latasha. Latasha at the time was about 15 years old. And she got upset and she responded to the woman. They got into an argument and then Latasha punched the woman. And, the one, and then she threw down the orange juice, threw down her money. She was so outraged. She turned to walk out of the store and the woman leaned over the counter and shot Latasha in the back of the head. And all of this was caught on video and when the woman went through the judicial system, she did not serve any prison time. Um, she was sentenced to community service, and she had to pay for Latasha's funeral. And the judge was a middle-class white woman who made this decision. And that was my first time realizing the extreme injustices within the system, because a few weeks after that, 
a man had kicked a dog and he got 28 days in jail. Mm. So that showed me at an early age that black lives really don't matter yeah. um, within our justice system. Well, I, uh, I was so fascinated by the story, which I did not know. And uh, every year, there's a, there's a march, there's a memorial, and I mean, every year since 1991. So you're a freshman in high school, you're living in this very different environment at this private school. This happens. And you were telling me that um, when you were nine years old, you thought about being a, a lawyer. Because then I said, at some point, when did you decide to go to law school? And you were like, well, I didn't want to go to law school. I just wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> and um, sorry, I don't think it works that way. Uh, I could be wrong. I tried anthropology for two months, so what do I know? Anyway, um, but you do decide to go to law school. Well, once I was you know, nine years old, I had seen lawyers on television. I didn't know anyone personally who had been an attorney. And I saw them advocating on behalf of people, speaking up in court. And then I thought about the conditions that were happening in my community. I moved to South Central LA right at the height of the war on drugs. The war on drugs has really decimated the black community in many ways. And it led to the system of mass incarceration that we currently have here in the United States where more than 2.3 million people are incarcerated. We have 5% um, of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. And I saw so many young people, particularly young black men, caught in the cycle of um, incarceration. Mm -hmm. And watching that just made me question what was happening and, and wondering what I could do to make a difference. And so when I saw those lawyers on television, I said, maybe if I do that, Maybe if I can speak up on behalf of people, I can help change things. And so that was just you know, consistent in the back of my mind that that's what I wanted to do, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I didn't waver from that. So after I left um, boarding school, I went to the University of Southern California, which I didn't know people would pay that much <laughs> to try to get their kids into, like <laughs> under the table with all, I'm like, wow, I should have more pride. I know, exactly. My parents did not have to do all that. Believe me, I filled out my own application. But anyway. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, yeah, I'm right, like, wow, right. I, I don't think I valued USC until I saw that big scandal, but. <laughs> whew, um, but that's where I went for undergrad. I majored in African-American studies, knowing that I wanted to focus on civil rights. And so that's just been the path that I've been on. Yeah, and then you were telling me that um, through a series of different serendipities and, and, and even something that you described that sounded like speed dating, sort of interviewing for <laughs> law school jobs. Yeah. And you get, um, you get a, a position, you get offered a position at St. Thomas Law Law School here in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. And, and you're in your 20s. Mm -hmm. So you're in your 20s, and you're now a law professor. How does that feel? Overwhelming, yeah. <laughs> you know, initially. Um, I did not set my sights on becoming a law professor. I knew, again, I wanted to become a civil rights attorney. So after law school, I actually did get a job in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. working for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And during that time, I really felt disconnected from the community because our office was in a high-rise downtown. I mean, we were rubbing elbows and schmoozing with all these fancy people. But, you know, being a girl from South Central, it, it really did not feel natural for me to stay, you know, in that environment. And so I got a call from one of my former law professors 
who was um, a white middle-aged woman, and she said, we have a visiting position at my alma mater, which was the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Will you take the position? And she said, if you come back to Champaign-Urbana and take this position, we will help you find a law teaching job anywhere around the country. And so, of course, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come back to, to um, University of Illinois. And then while I was there, I got a call from the dean of St. Thomas Law School asking me to interview. And so once I became a law professor, I felt like a fish out of water. Um, you know, if you know anything about St. Thomas, and particularly St. Thomas Law School, of course, it is overwhelmingly white, middle um, to upper middle class, and very conservative. Um, and also, it was a Catholic institution. Mm -hmm. I was not Catholic. I was not white. I was not upper middle class. <laughs> and so I had to figure out, you know, what is my role inside of this institution and mm -hmm. how can I make a difference? And the fact that I had gone off to boarding school helped me understand white people more than I knew <laughs> until I started, you know, teaching them. I'm like, this is natural, which is kind of scary. But, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so you're teaching, and you're teaching for quite a while. And then in 2014, um, I was talking about uh, Mary Engelbright, but um, you went to Ferguson and had an experience there, and it was, it was right after the grand jury had decided not to indict the police officer that shot Michael Brown. So what, tell us about that. What was that like in, in 2014 when you went to Ferguson? Well, one, I just want to thank you for sharing that story because oh. I'm sure that that resonated with a lot of people um, and opened some hearts here in the room to kind of think differently about how we react to people who are outspoken about racial justice issues because it tends to shift people out of their comfort zones mm -hmm. when you're having to confront race because so many people think that there's no racism or you know we're past that now but the person in the white house really helped illuminate the fact that that's not true no it's yeah it's just yep. it is what it is yep 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 so um in um in august of 2014 after mike brown was killed i watched like everyone else from afar i did not think that it was my battle and then i wrote articles you know what law professors do about the situation and then during the week of Thanksgiving in 2014, I will never forget uh, the decision was being announced late at night about the grand jury's decision of whether they were going to indict the officer who killed Mike Brown. And so I was watching the events unfold on social media. And suddenly, I stumbled upon um, a live scene of the police raiding um, um, a safe house. Uh, where activists would go, and police knew, you know, that they that they were off limits there. But they threw tear gas into the window wow. of that safe house, wow. and I saw children crying who had been tear gassed, and that did something to me as a mother. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as a woman of faith, I felt the conviction in my spirit that I needed to go to Ferguson. And so I talked to my children about it, and I asked them to pray for me of whether I should go. So it looked like a war zone, right? Mm -hmm. It was scary even thinking about it. And my son prayed, and he, he was like nine at the time. He said, Mom, God said that this is part of your journey. Wow. wow. And when that him. happened, I literally booked a flight, hopped on a plane, and went to Ferguson the next day. I was there as a legal observer through the National Lawyers Guild. And that night, we actually wound up being tear gassed. Wow. And that had an impact on me. We had actually gone to Home Depot. We bought paint masks. They don't work. 
if you're ever in a situation like that, get a real mask. Um, Good so when, to know. Right. So when we were tear gassed, I, you know, you have fluids just running all down your face, fluids you didn't even know you have. I had to pick up leaves off the ground and try to dry my face. And I was feeling so sorry for myself. I'm like, this is the week of Thanksgiving. I should be at home cooking for my children. I should be safe. And then I looked around and I saw young people who had also been tear gassed. Mm. But the difference between them and me was that after the tear gas wore off, they got back up. They kept marching. They kept demonstrating. Wow. They kept chanting. Yep. And that m made me realize how privileged I had become. A long way from South Central, being in the ivory tower of academia mm. and accustomed to certain things happening around me. And so it really shook me. And I just, I, I said, I, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. So I stayed there the entire week. And then as soon as I got back to the Twin Cities, I was approached by young people saying they were going to start Black Lives Matter Minneapolis. Would I help them? Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I could do. I'm like, I'm a law professor. I don't know how I can help them. But I showed up to the first meeting. I was the only one wearing a suit. I was like a fish out of water. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to shut down I-35. And I just took a deep breath. I'm like, OK. And so I helped shut down I-35, and then we marched to City Hall. We demanded equity resources be placed in the city budget, which did happen a week later. Wow. And then at our next meeting, they said, we're going to shut down the Mall of America. And at that point, I was all in. Um, I, was, I actually had become a spokesperson for them at that point, because mm -hmm. if you guys remember during that period of time, December of 2014, there was so much angst about Black Lives Matter. Right. There was an extreme amount of angst about going into one of Minnesota's sacred cows, the Mall of America, yeah. and disrupting. And the backlash was so intense. The hatred was so intense. So the young people, because of my background in civil rights, asked me if I would be their spokesperson in the media. And I agreed to do that to explain the connection between Black Lives Matter, why we were going to shut down Mall of America, and the connection to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Mm. When I did that, I became a target of prosecutors. Oh. So 3,000 of us showed up. My kids were there. Um, it was powerful. It was probably about 75% white folks who were there with us protesting. And I didn't get arrested that day. But about three weeks later, Bloomington prosecutors announced that they were going to charge 11 alleged organizers. And I was shocked, along with BLM members, when my name was on that list. Oh. I was one of two people with the most charges. I got charged with eight misdemeanors. And actually, instead of being afraid, something rose up in me to say, this is actually an opportunity. Yeah. Right? Sometimes what looks like adversity, there is opportunity on the other side if you're willing to face your fears. So I had no fear at that point. It was a little ironic because I'm like, I made it out of the hood with no charges. Yeah, right. But as soon as I started fighting for justice, suddenly I'm like public enemy number one. And so I said, I'm not even an organizer at this point, but if they're going to treat me like an organizer, I'm going to become one. And so I just went to a whole other level um, in terms of becoming an organizer after that point. And um, we fought our charges actually for almost a year and our charges were ultimately dismissed in November of 2015. Wow, good for you. Speaking of 2015, you assume the position of the president of the Minneapolis NAACP. Yes. Yes. And you were telling me that on November 15th, 2015, 
you get a call from the police telling you about the shooting of Jamar Clark. Yes. So I had become uh, NAACP president in the spring while facing these charges, while still a law professor. And so um, I got a call at about 4 o'clock in the morning from the assistant chief, who is now the chief of police, mm -hmm. letting me know that a young man had been killed by police. And I said, was he armed? He said, I don't think so. So after a call like that, I could not go back to sleep. So about 7 in the morning, I started looking on Facebook, and I saw that there had been witnesses to the shooting. And there were people who were giving accounts of what they witnessed, and they were saying that when the police came on the scene, that they were um, physically pushing people and spraying them with mace um, and, and basically treating them like they weren't human. They weren't asking them any questions mm. about what they witnessed. They were just really trying to cover up whatever was going on at that time. And so when I saw that, I just started texting NAACP members around 8 a.m. and I said, meet me at the scene where this happened. And when we got to the scene, you could not tell that anyone had been killed. The streets were completely empty, uh, no yellow tape, no squad cars, no government, no one out on the streets. All we could see was blood on the leaves in the wow. spot where Jamar had been killed. And so I asked members to start knocking on the doors uh, of people in the community to see if we could get information. And as we started doing that, people started coming out of their homes. Some people were crying. Some people were outraged, talking about what they had witnessed. And some were saying how fearful they were if the police could kill someone in front of all these people uh, and not feel you know, any real remorse behind that. Yeah. And there had already been newspaper accounts with uh, law enforcement's version of what happened. So I asked the people if they wanted to tell their story. They said yes. And so I opened up Facebook and pretty much wrote out a press release mm -hmm. saying we were going to have a press conference like within a couple hours. So we did that, and then hundreds of people wound up out on the streets. I called Black Lives Matter, and I asked them if they would lead us in a march and a rally so we could positively channel the energy. And that march and rally actually led to some people occupying the vestibule of the 4th Precinct because the police precinct was right down the street mm. from where it was walking distance from where Jamar was killed. So they're occupying the um, vestibule for about two or three days, and on the third day, the police come in and they force them out at gunpoint. And so at that point, they issued an SOS asking everyone to come back to the 4th Precinct. And that was the beginning of what became an 18-day occupation. Yeah, right. And at the same time, you're te still teaching yes. at St. Thomas. Yes. <laughs> so think about that. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, yeah, now today's students... Yes. Um, so, at, but at some point, I mean, you were telling me at some point it was like you you felt that your calling was to sort of step away. At this point, you had been teaching for thirteen years. Yo, I taught a total of fourteen. Fourteen years. years? Thirteen at St. Thomas. Okay. And um, and now and now it was time to sort of get back out there and and that that maybe you had more power to speak out or to be a spokesperson or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then. In 2016, you decided to run for mayor. Yes. So I had made the decision to run for mayor before I left St. Thomas. Oh, okay. So when I left St. Thomas, yeah. I, was, I had tenure, so I could say what I needed to say. I was a full professor of law. And I made the decision that this, I, it felt like cognitive dissonance, right? Being out in the streets, marching, protesting, confronting police, and then, like you said, yeah. being in the classroom 
where it was extremely safe. It just did not feel natural to me anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I started getting all these calls and all this pressure to run for mayor. And I initially said no. But then I thought about the fact that the mayor oversees the police department. Oh, right. So I'm like, right, right, okay. Right. So that made, that made sense for yeah. me to run. And I figured even if I did not win um, as mayor, I was going to make an impact in some way. And I was going to stay outside of academia because, mm -hmm. like I said, I had come in in my 20s and I didn't want to retire there. I was about 40 at this point. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to see what else I can do in the world, yeah. even if I do not win my election. Yeah. You were telling me how you um, you experienced uh, shocking and blatant racism during your campaign mm -hmm. and that people were telling you you weren't qualified and all these different things. And share that with us as far as the shocking part, like something that you hadn't experienced before, I'm assuming. Well, part of it has to do with the fact that even though I was in those positions, I was still insulated yeah. from overt racism, right? You know, sometimes there's covert, more hidden racism. Yeah. But when I decided to run for mayor, one of the things that I noticed that is that there were many white people who felt threatened by me as a black woman asserting myself and trying to reclaim resources on behalf of the black community and other communities of color that have been disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. Now, some of those people considered themselves to be progressive. Some of them had marched with us. Some of them have shut down freeways with us, the Mall of America. They had Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns. Uh, and they talked about this imp the importance of equity and equality. But when it came time to support a black woman who was running on those principles, I saw that a lot of people were afraid. And so there were many courageous white people who uh, would actually talk to their friends about my campaign, who would host house parties. Uh, but they had to do a lot of work to get people to be comfortable just to even come and hear what I had to say. And during some of those house parties, I would have older white men and women tell me that they were afraid of me. Right. Wow. And they're like and this and after they would hear me speak, they would be shocked because they didn't know, of course, that I'd gone to boarding school. They didn't know I'd been a law professor. Yeah. They didn't even know I was an attorney. They just thought I was like an in your face, like a black power woman who was just randomly running for mayor. And I'm like, I've written all these scholarly articles. I've won all these awards locally and nationally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had a long track record of strong leadership. But all of that was clouded by a lot of their fear. But once they would hear me speak and they would hear me articulate my platform and my vision for the city, I was able to change a lot of hearts and minds. Wow. And so ultimately, when the election happened, I wound up having the fourth highest number of votes. And I came in fifth overall out of 16 candidates. Yeah, good and I for was you. one of two women who ran. Yeah, good uh, for you. Mayor. Good for you. And you know, this is an obvious thing to say. But you, you talked about those white allies, mm -hmm. and they're marching with you. And but then for some reason, they're telling you, we're afraid of you. We don't want you to be the mayor. And then you're thinking, is it because you're a black, outspoken woman? That's, I just want to put that out there, because we are on the island of discarded women. So um, speaking of white allies, I would say, I'm just, I'll just for myself, OK, so I'm very progressive. I grew up with a very progressive uh, family. And so I'm thinking, sure, I'm a white ally. W what is a white ally? <laughs> share, share it with us. Well, usually I might be wrong. white allies don't call themselves white allies. <laughs> no offense. Um, but normally... Lesson number one. <laughs> 
don't call yourself a white ally because you aren't. Normally, okay, duly noted. Yes. Normally, uh, people of color will call you an ally if they see you actually doing the work, yeah. and they see you also taking the hits of what it means to stand up for racial justice, which is more than having a sign in your yard. It's actually showing up. It's being consistent, and sometimes you are dealing with people who are exerting their racism onto you because you are standing in solidarity with black people. And so a lot of the folks who work for my campaign were white people who were shocked when they had a boot, we had a boot at um, the state fair, some of the racism that they encountered, and they were just like, I, I don't know if I can deal with this. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm like, this is what we deal with every day, yeah. right? We can't um, pretend to not be black, but you can go back to your day-to-day -day life and never have to experience this again as long as you continue to do the things that society thinks are acceptable, which oftentimes does not include speaking out against racial justice. And so the folks who I consider allies, again, they are putting it on the line. They are making sacrifices. They are speaking up. They are posting about the issues. They are supporting candidates of color, mm -hmm. which is something I request people do consistently. Um, and they're taking the hits. And sometimes they lose friends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they lose family members. Sometimes uh, dinner conversations are uncomfortable mm -hmm. because they've decided to stand on the side of justice. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think an ally would do. Let's talk about Wayfinder Foundation. So you're the new executive director of that. So Wayfinder Foundation is actually a national foundation that supports the work of black and brown women organizers and activists. So we have 41 uh, women who are fellows right now. Most of them are mothers. Mm -hmm. And they work on issues ranging from um, criminal justice reform to child protection to sexual harassment to education. Uh, the list goes on and on. And so we fund these women uh, in the projects that they want to work on. We offer technical support. We offer training opportunities and uh, national gatherings as well. It, and it seems like from your website there are... Um there's a, a focus on helping women uh, find their voices and yes. become spokespeople and speak out about issues in their homes or their kids' schools or their communities, that there's a, an assumption that, uh, especially if, uh, of, of women of color, especially if they're not wealthy, mm -hmm. that they aren't allowed to speak up. They aren't allowed to have a voice. What really strikes me about uh, what happens to these women and their voices is similar to what you all were talking about here earlier today, that some people, some of the women lack confidence. Yeah. They haven't been affirmed, yeah. right? Especially in society. Yeah. How often in your circles do you make space for women like the Wayfinder women, yeah. right? Lower right. income women of color who want to make a difference. If you look at your social circles, your churches, where you spend your time, do you see these women present? And if not, why? And if you don't see them present, what does that say about how much or how little our society values the voices of women who fit into those categories? Yeah. There's a, a quote on the Wayfinder website that says, you can't win without women. Amen. Amen. And I would say we can win when we have women like this. Thank you, Nikema. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank, thank you guys so for much. having me. Thank you, thank you. Okay, well, that's our show. Thank you so much for coming to our new space here at Crooners. I want to thank our cast, Day Yang, 
Nancy Bagshaw-Reesner, Sylvia Pontaza, our guest and the author of 12 novels. Did you get that? Lorna Landvik and Zippy Lasky in that wonderful new song. Tonight's episode was written by Sue, Nancy, Lorna, Day, and Zippy. And I want to thank our lovely engineers and male allies, Zachary Thayer and Tony Axtell. And thanks to our brand new assistant, Hannah McDonald, and our volunteers, Suzanne Egley and Carolyn Mordetton. And big thank you to the wonderful staff here at Crooners. We will be back next month for another live island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Came the from your slot machine.